Welcome to the Good Friday service at S City Church. I want to welcome uh, other congregations that are joining us today. Uh, I want to welcome First Presbyterian Church of Mineola, uh, Community Church of Little Neck, City Light Community Church, Hope Church of Long Island, and uh, we just want to welcome you as you as we join together um, under one roof virtually here uh, via Zoom, so that we can uh, celebrate and just think about the death of Jesus Christ during this Holy Week. Uh, I know the churches are closed um, and we're forced to be uh, away from each other, but of course uh, the church is not the building, but it's the people of God. And uh, through technology, we're able to come together so that we can understand and think about deeply uh, the meaning of Good Friday, particularly as we're going through this pandemic. So I wanna uh, welcome you and tonight's service is gonna be very simple. After a time of prayer, uh, we're gonna go straight into worship to reflect upon the songs that's going to help us think, think deeply about the passion of the Christ. And then we'll have a special music by Pastor Chad Easton, and he'll give us a, a solo and singing about Via Dolorosa, the road in which Jesus walked on 2,000 years ago to go to the cross. And afterwards, we'll have a time of reflection as I share a message on this Good Friday. So would you join with me as we enter worship now? When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheet. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Lord Jesus Christ, wounded and crushed, you gave your life that we might live. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, 
and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Lord Jesus, wounded and crushed, you gave your life that we might live. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show but what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. 
Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, wounded and crushed, you gave your life that we might live. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of skull, which in Aramaic is called Gurta. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, 
This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers have crucified Jesus, they took his garment and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and his tunic. But the tunic was seamless and moving in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, for it to see who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciples took her to his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to the fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the leg of the first and of the other of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his leg. But of the soldier pierced his side with the spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says, they will be look on him whom they have pierced. Lord Jesus, wounded and crushed, you gave your life that we might live. Church, we're in a season of Lent. And to be honest, this holy season in the church has taken a back seat because of the pandemic and the crisis that uh, our world is going through at this point. In our world and the church, you know, we have to become just so laser focused on fighting this outbreak, you know. Um, but here we are on Good Friday, um, and we're still trying to make sense of this, honestly, trying to make sense of life right now. And there are many, many millions of people who are still afraid, uncertain, uh, still trying to figure out uh, how to flatten this curve. And we're all in this together, trying to uh, make the best of it. Nevertheless, there's still anxiety and a lot of questions about our near future. Now, I'd like for us to pause for a moment from all this data and all this um, uncertainties that's looming over us, especially our social media and, you know, the, the TV and the breaking news that is always constantly coming out. And I want us to kind of think, uh, forget about that for a little bit and, and, and focus and reflect for a moment about an important time for the church and for the world. 
And right now, it is Lent. Now, why is Lent important? Well, uh, the season of Lent um, is important not because it is a biblical mandate, sort of like God sending it through Mount Sinai. See, uh, Lent is important because it is a tradition that the church has established over centuries. And, um, and, and the church understood what the concept of Lent is because it is time for the church to pause for 40 days for a time of penance and for a time of repentance as well. The practice of 40-day preparation period began in the Christian church uh, during the 3rd or 4th centuries. And the number 40, uh, we use that in the church because it carries biblical connotation. If you can think about uh, Israelites who spent 40 years in the wilderness, and you can also think about Jesus spending 40 days in the, in the wilderness, um, and so the, 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 the number 40 has become very important in the Bible, and the church has incorporated that in the Lent season for 40 days. And as you know, it, begins, it began on Ash Wednesday of this year in, March, in February, and it continues throughout even today, the Holy Week, through tomorrow, and it ends on, ends on Holy Saturday, right before Easter. So that is the 40-day the span. Now today... As we think about the season of Lent that we are technically and officially still in, the practice of Lent has been um, simplified. Um, and, and it looks like this. It's, it's basically, if you've been part of um, uh, joining the season of Lent before this pandemic, uh, a lot of you perhaps probably have decided to give up on some indulgences. Maybe some of you gave up on chocolate for a little bit, or a friend of mine said they gave up on potato chips. <laughs> Whatever your indulgences are, no matter how trivial or how big they are for a season, you decide to give them all up. And I suppose it makes sense to do things like that for a little bit because we want to try to identify at least symbolically with the suffering of Jesus. So that makes sense to me. But to be generous... This idea of sacrifice, you know, to, um, is to practice spiritual discipline, and that is a good thing. You know, you know, we need to die to certain habits that are not healthy, right? Or vices or sins that just sort of get in our way, uh, in a sense, laying down our flesh for 40 days. And that, that makes sense. Um, as you've heard this name in recent months, Dr. Anthony Fauci has become a um, you know, common name in our households. The, the leading epidemiologist right now working with the White House task force team to fight coronavirus. Well, he's been speaking a lot and giving us a lot of important information. And recently, um, I've heard him say that things will get necessarily worse before it gets better. Now, in fact, this past week, uh, the death count in New York city particular and in our state was the highest in 24 hours it was above 700 deaths and this astronomical number and dr fauci said that the suffering and death are all around us and those were those are his words and he cited that uh perhaps after this ends that we may be having minimal of 100,000 or up to 240,000 deaths or more and that's just being optimistic so if that trajectory holds, we're in a season of death. We're a season of suffering like our world has never experienced before. And that is the true reality right now. 
So this is our context. So I'd like to ask you tonight, and, and as I talk about what is going on in our world right now, along with the season of Lent, I want to try to make this connection and ask, is there a link to this kind of death that we're facing in our world right now and Lent? My wife, Hyunsu, was telling me uh, weeks ago while we were being quarantined that she was listening to a lot of podcasts and one po- podcast uh, brought her to mind. That uh, and she relayed some of the um, some of the ideas that the podcast was saying. That that isn't it ironic that although the world you know does not really observe Lent as a whole, uh, Christians do, and not all you know, uh, but but Christians they participate not on a deep level, but maybe on an elementary level. And 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 the whole irony is that isn't it ironic that God is in a sense forcing the whole global world to enter into this season of Lent. And in fact, if you think about that, that is something to ponder because the world is forced to pause. The world is forced to give up our way of life, our, the, the freedom that we've so much enjoyed, the, the liberty to go out and eat at restaurants and do whatever we want. And of course, control and we've lost all that. And in a way, God is forcing us to stop everything, pause everything, and to see our more morality, mortality, I'm sorry, mortality up close and personal. In other words, I, I think God is forcing this season of Lent upon us right now. You know, when I began to write this message a few weeks ago, uh, I was in quarantine for about 14 days. I was stuck in this little room with lots of time and a lot of days to think and ponder. And I, and I was wondering that during this Lent season, this pandemic that we are in at this point and the uncertainty of our world, I was asking, God, um, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to the church and what are you saying to the world? Now, with all the barrage of breaking news and those escalating scary numbers of virus cases and death, you know, you hear all this every day and, and it will deafen your ears because if God is speaking, and he is, um, you will miss the sm- still small voice of God. With one year you know, to God and to the other year to the news and the chaos that's going on in our world, it is so jarring to try to make sense of what God is saying. So this is what I want you to know. And, and, and if you want to hear from God, and if you are hearing from God on this Good Friday, let me say this, that God is speaking, that God has a message. And so, so I want you to hear his voice today, just for this time that we have together. Right, you know, uh, previous to the message, we've heard the passion narrative read by different folks that just outlines uh, what Jesus had to endure the last hours of his life. And those events uh, unfolded, which led Jesus to the cross. And that narrative, is a, there's a message, and I want you to listen and try to hear God's voice. Listen, on this night 2,000 years ago, Jesus was falsely accused, wasn't he? And he was tried 
falsely, and we heard that passage, and he was found guilty of blasphemy by the religious leaders. Now, I want, you, I want to point this out, that in that whole narrative, I want to point out that there is death all throughout that narrative that we have seen in the Gospel of John. We see Jesus preparing for that hour. And, and when the Bible uses the term hour, it is a technical term that he uses to refer to his death. We also see Judas unknowingly hasting that hour of his death with, you know what he did? He betrayed Jesus because uh, his expectation of Jesus didn't come to pass. And we also see the religious leaders forcing a death sentence on Jesus using the Roman legal system to condemn an innocent man. And you also see on the cross, as he's being uh, uh, crucified, there were two criminals who are also facing death alongside Jesus. And by the way, those two criminals who were dying, they were legally condemned to death. And even the disciples in the background were experiencing a death. They were experiencing a death of their of their movement. They were experiencing the death of their leader, the loss of their leader, and they didn't know what to do. So, the connection with Lent and this passion narrative uh, leads to this for me. And this is what I feel like God is telling us, that there is a smell of death right now in this season. And we, you and I, mortal humans, uh, we are forced to inhale this. Normally, Americans want to avoid suffering and death at all costs, but God has forced you and me, the whole church, the whole world, if you will, to literally pause and to stop and to shelter in this place to see face to face death amid this corona, coronavirus pandemic. So what, I, what God is saying to the church during this time of forced Lent is this. You know, they could, he could say a lot of things and there are many lessons to be learned, but I believe that Jesus would teach us that when you enter in this season of Lent that is forced upon us, the message is this, that the quality of your relationship with the Father, with God himself, will go in one or two directions. Either it will be renewed deeply so you understand God you understand why this is happening and you worship him and you submit deeply to him or your faith will be gravely weakened. And I believe that's the message for the church today. And those are the only two choices that you have. God is either calling you to have a stronger, greater, deeply renewed relationship with him now or, or you, would just, you would just leave him. Now, before the pandemic, the church did observe Lent very casually, like I mentioned before. And, and, and we're, we're able to go through the season every year uh, because we're able to, if you think about this, we're able to endure whatever sacrifices that we were able to lay down, the indulgences. And we were able to lay out this, these inconveniences uh, temporarily for 40 days. That's why no matter how addicted you are to coffee or chocolate or fast food or whatever, uh, you can do that. And you'd be willing to do that for 40 days because that is a safety net that we have. In other words, after Lent, because no one's looking, 
you know, no one's watching you, you can have them again. And, and, and whatever your indulgences that you laid aside after 40 days, you can get back to it again. And that's the safety net, isn't it? Now, this type of entering Lent, all right, the problem with that kind of um, understanding of Lent is that it doesn't really deeply change you. It doesn't make you want to fall in love with God over and over again. You know why? Because there is no real death. All of the vices that we're wrestling with, of course, you know, we want to uh, be less temperamental. We want to gloss less, gossip, gossip less. And, you know, our lust, we want to temper and the envy. I mean, you name it. All the sins that we are struggling with, of course, we want to get rid of them. But if we approach Lent in that way, haphazardly, and just kind of just kind of manage it for a season and not really do, deal with it, we're never, ever really going to die to those things, are we? Now, similarly, many in the church, um, we are willing to suffer the inconveniences of a quarantine right now, aren't we? Because we have to. In the church, we were forced to be socially distant, and that's why we have to do everything virtually. We're forced to shelter in place. And we, I, think, I think we are willing to do that. And we're willing to trust God during this time. But here is the catch. As long as we have a safety net during this crisis, we're hoping, because the government tells us, that after April 29th, that's a few more weeks down the line, it's over. In other words, this forced Lent season that we're under uh, is going to be over. And we're hoping for that, aren't we? But here's my point as I'm trying to get to the message here. That as long as the church enters this forced Lent with this kind of safety net in place, that is this optimistic condition that everything's going to be fine that everything's going to get back to normal when the virus goes away, when the government gives us the uh, thumbs up and the green light. And um, as long as we have that, uh, we figure um, it's going to be great. But the problem is, and this is what I'm trying to say, your faith in God will not be strengthened, will not go deeply to trust Him more and be renewed. Why? I mean, I hope we get through this quickly, but, but I want to say the church is not going to grow deeply with the Father. Why? Because you and I as a church, if we go this way, we're not trusting our God as a, as a Father to be trusted during this time, but we're trusting Him as we would any other idol. And I want to remind you what an idol is in the Bible, because the Bible teaches that if we serve idols, what idols are, they're just conditional, and they're temporary. Now, why do I put it in those terms? Because this, what would happen if some of us, all right, died from the virus? What, what would happen if some of you have not only just uh, lost your job temporarily, but permanently? What would happen if the virus does not go away after April 29th and uh, then this year, but it continues to disrupt our life for years to come? If we look at God as an idol, all right, then, then our faith in Him will not, be, uh, will not go deep because you know what idols are, the Bible says. Idols do not have the capacity to give hope, 
give life and a future. And what I'm trying to say is that as long as you treat God like an idol, you cannot be deeply renewed by this God. In fact, your faith will go the opposite direction. It won't get strengthened. It will be gravely weakened during this pandemic and afterwards. You know, recently I watched uh, this classic movie that comes on uh, every Palm Sunday evening called The Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston playing Moses. Maybe you've seen this this past Sunday. Um, as I was watching this, um, I was reminded of the Exodus story because that is the story of Exodus. Uh, to see God come through the most impossible situation was so amazing. You know, if you've seen um, the Ten Commandments, if you know the Exodus narrative, you'll see that God comes through impossible situation to deliver Israel over and over again. First from the hands of Pharaoh uh, with the ten plagues. And so Pharaoh is forced to release them. And as they're going into the wilderness, uh, now you see Pharaoh and his army changing his mind and coming to get the Israelites. And now uh, their backs are against the wall and they're about to die. All right, and then God re, God uh, saves Israel by parting the Red Sea, and um, and they cross it, and it's a glorious experience. And now uh, they're in the wilderness now, and there's no food, and there's no water in the wilderness. And so you see, time and time after again, Israel grumbling, right after God had made this miraculous deliverance. And so in in the number in the book of Numbers. You see Moses writing this, and this was the constant refrain, what the Israelites were going through. And he says this, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to him, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why were the Israelites constantly grumbling and complaining after this miraculous uh, deliverance one after another? And their answer is this, because the Israelites, they were not worshiping God. They treated God like any other idol. See, the Israelites showed how you and I react when we serve idols. You know, we become fickle. Our faith in God becomes temporary. Because inherently what you have to understand today in this season of Lent is that idols, if we're serving, if we're, if we're worshiping God like an idol, then this idol does not have the capacity to give us the hope that we need, the life that we need right now, and the future prospects after all this over, or even if this is never the case. Because if you treat God like an idol, you can only live for the present and treat your deity with mere conditionality. That is, as long as I'm healthy, as long as my loved ones do not get sick, or God forbid that I succumb to the grip of death from this virus, or that our economy be revived, you know, as long as these things, these positive things can happen, then I will walk with God. And that's the only thing an idol can do for us. I'm afraid, church, that we are placing our trust in this kind of a functional God or idol right now. And this, and this is what I believe that God is saying to us, that God is being used 
as an idol. God is being used as a safety net for your faith right now. You, the church, is saying refrains, just like the Israelites in the wilderness, saying that as long as you deliver us, God, from Pharaoh, as long as you give us food and water and shelter, as long as you keep us healthy and keep us safe from the virus, we will follow you. This kind of faith will certainly weaken you, church. So on this Good Friday, I implore you to follow, not an idol, not God that we turn into an idol, but the true triune God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who followed their God, who followed Yahweh. You know why they were the patriarchs? Because they followed God when there were no safety nets in place. As a result, they, they became our patriarchs of faith. They became our examples for the church because at, this, at each of the moment of their lives, if you look at their stories, they went through excruciating trials and tests of suffering with no safety nets. Therefore, as a result, their faith were renewed and strengthened and they became the pillars of faith for the church to follow. Now, currently in this pandemic, in this forced land that we're in, this death is real, and your safety net is at play right now, either consciously or unconsciously. I believe that God is calling the church to not succumb to that, but to thrive and to be the church, to be the hope and the light during this plague. He's calling the church for you not to be weak and lose faith because the world will not get any better. And even after all this crisis is over, it's going to be a new normal. It's not going to be the same. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to be the church that's going to thrive and not throw God out because it's not the way we wanted? And the answer is this. Do not treat your God like any other idol. But look at God who does and who wills whatever pleases him. That's the God that he's calling us to serve. Listen, on this night, 2,000 years ago, Jesus suffered a death more potent than coronavirus and contracted a disease of sin, even though he himself never sinned. He had no protection over him. He had no support, no advocate, no aid. He only had judgment on him. He only had finger pointing. He only had false accusations that led him to a guilty verdict of a forced death. If there ever was a safety net for Jesus, a guaranteed safety net for Jesus, it was his father who he thought would deliver him at all costs. And yet the passion narrative shows that when Jesus called on his father, his father turned his face away from him, in which it prompted Jesus to cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Why would the father do that to his beloved son? Because when you have the disease of sin spread all throughout your soul, Romans says the wages of sin is death. And that's why the father turned his face away to his beloved son because his son was contagious, full of death 
and sin, and he had to turn his face away. So Jesus, Jesus died a lonely death, a cruel death caused by the virus of sin. He died a respiratory failure on the cross on Good Friday. So how does Jesus' death give us the church, this hope, and this great faith during this pandemic? And how does the cross keep us awake from this weak, pathetic faith uh, that we will typically tend to go like the wind blows? You know, during this time, there are good news that are spreading um, throughout the news. And, and uh, in the midst of this global crisis, let me mention two. One, one of the amazing news that's going on right now is that people actually are recovering from the virus. Despite the grave conditions, and we have we have images from uh, uh, all over um, the internet where people are coming out and nurses and doctors they're lining up on the hallway and they're excited that a patient is not dying but actually leaving the ICU and leaving the ER. Second thing that we see is that we have people who are in the front lines sacrificing their time, their lives even to serve those who are sick, and we applaud them. So, so at least those are two amazing things that we are hearing all the time, and I thank God for that. But let me tell you this. On Good Friday tonight, there's even something greater, greater news for the church today, that when we are faced with situations against all hope, all right, instead of putting our trust in the safety nets that I've been trying to say, we put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Christ. You know why? That is, that is even greater than the hope that we have in this world right now because like those who put themselves on the front line of the coronavirus, Jesus was the only one, and think about this, he was the only one in the front line qualified to treat all humanity from the greatest plague known to man that is the virus of sin. He's the only one qualified. On the cross, as you know, from noon to 3 p.m. 2,000 years ago, he went to war to fight this disease of sin alone. Jesus went to war without protection, without any safety nets, to destroy the disease once and for all, to send it to where it belongs, to the fiery pit of hell. And hell is the only place to destroy this, this, this disease of sin. And Jesus went there in our place on Good Friday. This is good news for the church because Jesus became the sacrifice for us by willing to be infected with the pernicious disease of sin. Now I know that many in our world right now would welcome this great news, amazing news of this magic cure. We want a vaccine, don't we? We want something to fight COVID-19 forever. Here's the news that's even better than that. Although Jesus died, we know that the greatest news that you can have today is that there is a foolproof vaccine for sin today. Jesus was the first person ever to be resurrected after being destroyed due to sin. In other words, he is the first human in history to be immune from the vaccine for sin 
that will destroy all of humanity. Jesus does not stay dead, friends, but he resurrects from the dead, which means Jesus recovered from the greatest disease of all. The virus of death is destroyed. And like the patients recovering, you know, coming out of ICUs and ERs, Jesus walks out of the tomb of death. This is such amazing news that the early church wrote a hymn of affirmation. We find this 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sermon um, is not over. But in a few days, we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday, the Resurrection Sunday. Um, here, the rest of the story. Church, I want to invite you to come and spiritually get vaccinated with the salvation of Jesus as we celebrate the resurrection. Amen. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Lord Jesus Christ, wounded and crushed, you gave your life that we might live. Now the service has ended. Let's receive the benediction. The God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good so that you may do God's will, working among us, that which is pleasing in God's sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.